couple of stories. The first one, they'll know we are Christians by our love. Takes me back to Trot Creek Bible Camp, Cascade Mountains, just east of Portland where I grew up. My church had a summer camp that they owned. Being the church kid that I was, I was at that camp as a camper from third grade until I think eighth grade. And then my ninth grade year, I began to serve there as junior staff. Served there as a junior staff person through, oh, probably my junior year, senior year. No, through my senior year. And then first couple of years of college, I I worked there as, as senior staff, as a counselor. We sang that song, I think, every week for every summer that I was there. They'll know we are Christians by our love. And, and I'm pretty sure that that's the song that led to my recommitment of my life to Christ probably three or four times every summer for all those years that I worked at Trout Creek Camp. And then I would continue to be a jerk the rest of the year, and then I'd go back to camp and I'd recommit my life to Jesus again, and you know everything would just be fine all summer long, and then summer camp's over, back to jerk. You know, I just, endless routine. It didn't stick until, praise be to God, I was about 23 years old, and he hit me upside of the head. That is a part of, of my story. There is another story that goes with Amazing Grace, and perhaps you know some of it. Amazing Grace indeed, I was blind, but now I see. And that's that's what John Newton wrote, late 1700s, the composer of what many people think is the most popular Christian hymn. And he was not referring to poor or weak spiritual eyesight. He was referring to blindness something that corrective lenses would not help, something that required the healing touch of God's grace in his life. Couldn't see a thing until that grace touched the eyes, restored his sight. Newton was reflecting upon his life that had been far less than saintly when he wrote those words. One account that I read about him this week said, you know, sailors were not noted for the refinement of their manners. But Newton had a reputation for profanity, coarseness, and debauchery, which even shocked many of the other sailors. He was known as the great blasphemer. Grew up in the house of of a commander of a merchant ship. He was 11 years old when he went to sea with his father. Made six voyages with his father. In those days, voyages took years, years, months, and years uh, at the age of 19, he was, he was drafted into the Navy, served on a warship. He eventually deserted. He was publicly flogged after he was caught, humiliated before all of England. And then sometime later, after he had been forced back into service again, he exchanged, somehow requested a, a, an exchange and, and ended up on a, a slave trader that was bound for Africa. He was brutally abused by the sea captain. Some years later, a friend of his father, at his father's request, found him and rescued him. Newton ultimately became the captain of his own slave ship. Another piece of his story was that his mother, who died when he was just a child, 
had given him some religious instruction. But as an adult, any of that was, was long gone. Until he writes about a voyage one day when he was attempting to steer the ship through a particularly violent storm, and he experienced what he was referred to later as his great deliverance. And he recorded in his journal that when all seemed lost and the ship was surely going down, he exclaimed, Lord, have mercy upon us. Later in his cabin, he reflected on what he said and began to believe that God had spoken to him in that storm and that that grace had begun its work in his life. If you know the story, he continued as as a slave trader for some time after his conversion, but he, he did it out of just financial necessity and saw to it that, that the slaves under his care were, were treated humanely. Near the end of his life, he decided to become a minister, teamed up with a friend, William Cowper. They began a series of weekly prayer meetings, and their goal was to write a new hymn for each one of those prayer meetings. And the result of their efforts, 68 of them were written by Cowper, 280 of them were written by Newton. Amazing Grace being his most famous. And did I mention that one of the prayers of his mother when he was very young was that he would one day become a minister? Amazing Grace. God's grace indeed. In In our Sunday morning connect group downstairs, after the worship, we have been reading John Stott's book, Why I Am a Christian. Stott refers to that 18th century poem by Francis Thompson, The Hound of Heaven. He refers to God's grace always being at work. Grace at work long before that point in time where we make a confession of faith in Christ and, and grace that carries us long after that. In the words of another Chris Tomlin song, It's there in the newborn cry, in the light of every sunrise, in the shadows of this life. It's there on the mountaintop, in the everyday, in the mundane, in the sorrow, in the dancing. Your grace finds me. God, your grace finds me. Great grace. Oh, such grace. We have called this series that we've been in for a few Sundays together, Transforming Love. Because it is about God's love. And it is, it is grace that, that makes us aware of God's love. It is, it is God's kind disposition to do good to those who do not deserve it, to make His love known. And the assumption that John has made in this study so far, and I, and I hope you've gotten it, is that when that love of God touches our lives, things change. They just do. And if, if they're not changing, then we need to perhaps go back and look again at what it is that we understand about that love and what we have committed ourselves to. That's John's point. So we've looked at his letter that was written near the end of that first century to followers of Jesus who were scattered all over the Roman Empire, facing all kinds of things. When a person really knows God and experiences his love for them, made evident through the death of Jesus that person will live differently. They have become, as we have learned, a member of God's family. 
What amazing love the Father has lavished on us that we should become the children of God. And that is what we are. And, and he joins us into this family, the family of God. And John's point is that those who have been transformed by the love of God will love the other members of the family in the same way that God has loved them. Godly love. Sacrificial action. That is how God has shown his love. And remember, John is the apostle that recorded those words of Jesus about the importance of, of the love that his followers would have for one another. They'll know that we're Christians by our love and unity among his followers. The love that they have for one another is what will identify them. The unity that comes from that love at work in their midst will convince others of the truth that Jesus came to be the Savior. So love, we have learned so far, is much more than just a verbal expression. It's much more than words. It's much more than just an emotional sentiment. It is action. Love is action that is for the good of others. And John is really interested in the witness of God's people based on what he understood from the teachings of Jesus, that as God's people love one another in a godly fashion, it will become the foundation which the witness of God's people is built upon. What they believe about the validity of Jesus, the importance of Jesus, John would say, rises and falls based on how well God's people love one another as God has loved them. So this morning we're going to read from 1 John 4. We're going to jump up a chapter. You'll hear some of the, uh, the truths that we have, we've talked about and learned together. He's reemphasizing what, what is of ultimate importance. And then he adds one more, uh, what I think is really significant truth in this text. So let's stand together and uh, listen for that as we, as we read along. From 1 John 4. Here we go. Dear friends, let us love one another. For love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God. Because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and His love is made complete in us. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. All right. Again, a reemphasis of some of the, uh, the familiar themes that we have learned so far. We must love one another as God loved us. And it's not, you recall, our interpretation of love. It is what God has done for us and how he has loved us. Love, John says, comes from God. God is love. 
And he demonstrated his love by sending Jesus as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. God loved us first. So our love for him and others is a response to his initiating love in our lives. Familiar themes. And then we read these words, which I I think is one of the most important statements in all of John's letter. Rachel, can we have that next slide up? No one has ever seen God. No one has ever seen God, John says. But if we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. So, I want you to talk with your neighbor for just a minute or two. In what way does loving one another, again, John's assuming godly love, sacrificial love, in what way does loving one another complete the love of God and allow people to see God? See what your neighbor thinks. Okay, we ready? You need more time. Yes, yes. It's a tough question. Sorry, it wasn't a fluffy one. Okay, you want to take a stab? <clears throat> it's quite a statement. <clears throat> what way does loving one another complete the love of God and allow people to see God? What do you think? What, what did you talk about? Idea from, from your neighbor or your idea? Give it a shot. Wow. Yeah, to think that God loved us the way that we were, continues to love us the way that we are. Redeemed, but still broken and struggling. Powerful stuff. And John was one of them. It is, it is a wrestle, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Good image. Bottled up versus overflowing. Shake it up, pop the cork, watch it go, right? Oh, man. Oh, man. That's, that's where we want to go next week, by the way. <laughs> Thank you. You're, you're tracking. You're tracking. I, that's where it leads. That's where it leads. But, but first and foremost, we have to get it in terms of what it means for us as God's people because that is John's audience. That is what John is concerned about. Heaven. Praise be to God. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. With a godly, sacrificial love. Yeah. You know, it's... Um, It's interesting when you read some of the commentaries on on this. What does it mean to to see God? You know, the the first point that is always made is that that God is spirit. We know that. Jesus told the Samaritan woman that that God is spirit. You know, John, in his revelation vision, he describes a, if you've read that recently or not, go back and read it, you'll, you'll see. He describes a presence on the throne in heaven but he doesn't give any sort of a bodily description of that presence. It, it, it's just a powerful presence. Uh, we understand that in the Old Testament, there are appearances of God. We call those theophanies, where God takes on the, the appearance of, of a human or, or, or sometimes an angel. There are, there are visions of God in Isaiah and Ezekiel, Daniel, Moses. Moses saw some of God's glory. The writer of Hebrews says that God's most clear revelation of himself is in his son Jesus. Jesus told his disciples, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. But the fact is, if we've seen Jesus, we haven't seen the Father in terms of the spirit that the Father is. So what do we make of this all? I don't know. (laughs) There, 
<clears throat> it is not the best I can do. Seems to me. It seems to me. Rather than wrestle with some of the nuances, we, we best understand this in light of John's overriding concern in this letter. Doug kind of took us in that direction a bit there. And, and we do it with an eye for the nature of God as Trinity. Yes? Three and one. One and three. Let me explain. John's fundamental concern and you know this, we've, we've talked about it, we've learned it, is that for those who claim to be followers of Jesus Christ, there is a right way to live. And especially there is a right way to live in relationship with one another. Remember, it's because it's the witness of the body that gives supreme, clear witness to who Jesus is. That is John's driving concern. Remember the Gnosticism that was creeping its way into the churches, particularly as we get to the end of the first century. People who claimed to know God, and yet they were living lives that were full of self. Self-interest, self-concern, self-gratification. I mean, just living life to the max on the autopilot that exists for most of us, or, or the default mode. We are self-absorbed people. And yet, they claimed to love others. But it was, a, it was a confusing kind of a thing. And that's why, of course, and we've talked that, that John, as, as their pastor, as, as the elder, the pastor of the church in Jerusalem before it was scattered due to persecution, he was addressing this concern. And his point is that those who claim to know God will not live like that because that has, that's not how God has demonstrated himself to us. They will live like Jesus. They will love others like Jesus. He was a willing sacrifice given for the sin of, of fallen humanity and that was a demonstration of God's love. God's people will love one another sacrificially. They'll put the needs and the interests of one another before themselves. So, when we hear these words or we read these words of John, we need to keep in mind that overriding concern. That is what is on John's heart. And then, there's just that orthodox understanding of God who is Trinity. God is most clearly understood Father Son, and Spirit. The Father is God, the Son is God, and the Spirit is God. But the Father is not Jesus, and Jesus is not the Father. And the Spirit is not either one of them. It is that mystery that hurts our head, but it is that mystery that is, that is supported by Scripture and has, has been camped upon by God's people throughout the centuries. God existing in community. And it is an eternal relationship of selfless love. So, John is writing to this community of people. And his overriding concern is that they show selfless love as God has been showing selfless love amongst God's self for all of eternity. Father, Son, and Spirit a mutual love and a mutual service and a mutual appreciation. Does that make sense? I think that helps us understand what John is driving at here. <clears throat> that when God's people are loving this way, 
people are going to get a sense of the selfless communal love in which God exists in all of God's glory. And here's the thing. For us as God's people, what do we do with that? I think it, I think it begins to make sense. It begins to be lived out in our lives with one another as we have a renewed appreciation for God's amazing grace. As Chris Tomlin adds to that wonderful song, my chains fell off. I've been set free. Set free from what? Set free from a life that is lived for self. And all that that may look like in a person's life. Different for everyone. I've been set free from my self-absorbed, self-focused, seeking to satisfy self-life. And I have been recreated by the grace of God and His transforming love to give myself, first of all, to Him for whom I was created, and then to those whom God has made me a part of the family with. Each of us has a story of grace. Just like John Newton, the work of grace is amazing and it's miraculous in every one of our lives. But we forget that. We hear, we hear stories of, of amazing transformation. Criminals who become model citizens. Drug dealers who leave it all behind. Murderers who, who come to know Jesus in prison and, 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 and become ministers in the prison setting. On and on and on, our mind plays out these marvelous transformations. <clears throat> and, I don't think we do it on purpose, but subtly, our mind elevates those transformations to a greater level of grace than it took to change us non-criminals. Would you agree? We do that. Brothers and sisters, there are no degrees of difficulty with God. He doesn't sweat it out. You know, he doesn't wonder how he's going to capture the heart of that hardened individual. When he decides to capture the heart, it's a done deal. It may play itself out for a long time. That's the adventure of grace. That's the story of grace. Jesus, you remember, told us that when one sinner repents, there is great rejoicing in heaven. He doesn't qualify the sinner. When he or she has turned from this or that, there's great rejoicing. But for those of you who've lived good lives, oh, it's no big deal. You know, life goes on as usual in heaven. He doesn't say any of that stuff. That's because God's salvation Biblically speaking, theologically speaking, we know this. His salvation is made available to rebels, to those who were enemies of God, to those who Paul refers to as objects of God's wrath. They were living for self. And in essence, living for self holds our fist in the air and tells the Creator, you can take a hike. I'm in this for myself. And that was all of us. That was all of us before the grace of God cracked open our understanding 
of God's amazing love. Whether we know it or not, that is truth. Grace has been defined by some as, as the kindness of God. It is, what, it is what leads us to repentance, to salvation. The, the love of God provides that salvation and, and grace is what opens us to what God has done and continues to do. It is God at work in the world doing things for people that they don't deserve. There was a time when you didn't know Jesus. And then you did. Grace. There was a time <clears throat> when you didn't think about God. And then you did. Grace. Each of us has a story of grace, my brothers and sisters. And that story needs to be told and celebrated And what better place to do that than with those who are also recipients of that amazing grace? As I thought about and worked on this sermon this week, I kept asking the Lord, so where is this going? And I... I found that the words that kept coming to my mind over and over throughout this week were these words of moving toward one another. Moving toward one another. That is not human nature. Moving toward one another in an honest expression of who we are. Moving toward one another in, in, in being honest in terms of, of our stories and transparency and a willingness to share so that others can celebrate the amazing grace of what God has done in our lives. I think that we need to be living more and more of a grace adventure. Celebrating together what God has done and what he continues to do in our lives, growing together as, as we share life together and are moved by the Spirit toward one another as, as recipients of, of God's grace. We need to allow the Spirit of God who is living in us and, and prompting us toward godly recognition and godly things and godly thinking and godly actions. We need to allow the Spirit to rehearse for us Reminding us the reality of grace in our lives. Grace is a gift. By definition, grace is undeserved. We did nothing to earn God's grace. His grace is what led us to the discovery of of His great love. So, where does this leave us? When you think in terms of loving one another in a godly fashion, loving one another as God has loved us, so that God's love is made complete, so that so that there is there is a a glimpse of who God is in his character. 
and in his community that comes from us as his people living that way, it seems to me that grace is our motivator. Grace moves us toward God. Grace always moves us toward God. And when we as God's people have been moved by God toward God, it seems to me that a right response is that we begin to take more seriously the responsibility that he has called us to, to move toward one another. It occurred to me this week that we talk about sacrifice, and we've used that word a lot in this series so far. <clears throat> As Christians, we understand that the ultimate sacrifice is, is the example of Christ who, who, who gave his life for us. We think of Paul in Romans 12, <coughs> excuse me, in Romans 12 that, we, that we present our bodies as living sacrifices. And I think sometimes that word sacrifice can be a bit scary if that's where we jump to automatically. <clears throat> I would suggest to you that, that perhaps one of the ways, no, not perhaps, I think the way, the way that we can begin to move along that path of recognizing God's sacrifice and, and, and opening ourselves to the Spirit of God working in us is to begin to, to move toward one another in terms of how we know one another. We, we ended our service a couple of Sundays ago, you remember, <clears throat> looking at one another. Looking at the faces that represent the people that God has brought to this place. And I wonder if you went away, I hope you did, thinking, gosh, there are a lot of folks here whose, whose stories I don't know. A lot of folks here for whom I've never heard or celebrated with them God's amazing grace. It seems to me that that's the starting point. How do, we, how do we really get to a place of, of genuine, heartfelt, sacrificial action for one another <clears throat> if we're not intent on knowing one another better? Moving toward one another, recognizing that, that God's grace is something that needs to be celebrated together. Simply put, it's being aware that there are others in this little slice of the kingdom of God called Applewood Community Church who could be known better by us. Now, <clears throat> here's where you're not going to like me. I mean, it'll be one of, one of many reasons, probably. Because we all value our time. Time is money. Time is worth more than money to many of us these days. We can't know each other if we don't take the time to do so. Little ways. Little ways that we can, we can express awareness of others. <clears throat> you know, I always refuse lists, but I have one for you this morning. They're just some of the things that come to me. Simple kinds of ways that we connect. Faces that you don't know that well on a Sunday morning. Introduce yourself to someone who you don't know that well. 
Introduce yourself to the person that you've never met before. Express an interest in their existence. They are here. God has brought them here for this body. And yeah, <clears throat> you don't know how they're going to respond. You don't know how it's going to make you feel. That's really not important. It's that we, we acknowledge one another. It's an opportunity to start down a path of, of knowing. Thanks, brother. <laughs> Do you want to just pour that on my head and <laughs> anoint me with that? Thank you, Alfredo. Acknowledging one another's existence. Here's another one. I've polled a few people. So don't be offended because we're all in this boat. Have you ever noticed that in the bulletin every week there are birthdays and anniversaries listed? Most of the people that I have asked don't get a birthday acknowledgement or an anniversary acknowledgement. And you say to yourself, I say to myself, but, but I don't know that person. That's the point. It's an easy entree. It is a two-minute email that says, Hi, my name is. I don't know you. But today's your birthday. And I just want you to have a great day. God bless you. I hope there's an opportunity that we can get to know one another better as brothers and sisters in the family of God at Appwood Community Church. Is that what it's for? <laughs> I, it's, it's simple stupid, right? But it's... It's a commitment, it's an intentionality to moving toward one another. Recognizing and affirming one another's existence here in the body of Christ. It's an opportunity to send a quick little email or or a quick text. Gosh, even a phone call. Even be as human and real as a phone call. Sometimes it it just stuns me how, how little I call people anymore so much easier to text. You understand? I think, I think this is a starting point for us, and, and that's not to say that, that we don't do those things, but there could always be more. There could always be more knowledge of one another's lives and stories. Yeah, I know we don't have time. We're busy. But there is nothing more important than this. It is our witness for Jesus as the people of God that is at stake if we are not being intentional in just little ways. And I'm not here to tell you how to do that specifically or how often to do that. It's just some ideas. We've talked about being surrendered to the Spirit. That's, that's another point. Surrender to the Spirit to say, I get this. I understand you're calling me to to more involvement, to move toward my brothers and sisters. Give me ideas, give me impulses, give me thoughts. Lead me in ways that could be a blessing to them. Get me out of the way and live through me. So praise team, I've meddled long enough. Why don't you come on up and lead us as we respond. Another sacrificial action that I think is is most powerful is our prayers for one another. Again, those folks that are listed in the bulletin, do we pray for them? 
We take them before our Father when we see their names. When we hear of prayer requests and needs, do we take those to the Father? Do do we ever follow up on those with one another? Hey, you know, I I heard, I read on the prayer line that, that this happened. How are you doing with that? I've been praying for you. How's it going? Again, the adventure of grace. God weaving us together. We've got to do our part in that adventure. We've got to, we've got to invest and move toward one another. Amen.